This is They Create Worlds, episode 159, An International Adventure. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. It's that time again, Alex. We have to go and be like Indiana Jones. Get our fedoras, get our whips, maybe even a pistol, and go on an international adventure, exploring the heights and depths of computer game history as we try and uncover the unknown truth on our grand worldwide adventure. Yes, of course, as I'm sure everyone figured out by that opening uh, scene there. Today we are taking a look at the company Adventure International, which has absolutely nothing to do with Dilbert, despite being founded by a gentleman by the name of Scott Adams, who is not that Scott Adams. There are multiple Scott Adams in the world. Adams is actually a fairly common name. So is Scott. Absolutely. We've talked a little bit about Adventure International before in some other contexts, but this is a company that we haven't done one of our in-depth company deep dives on yet. And it's definitely a company that deserves one because it really straddled three different eras of the computer game industry and kind of three different models for how you sell computer games. In the beginning of its time, it was an innovator because it was moving the industry in a new direction from its very hobbyist roots and was one of the first companies to really make a business out of computer games. But then it did not adapt as the market around it changed, and so it became more and more marginalized. And in the end, when it went out of business in 1985, it was at that time one of the oldest computer game companies that was still going, but because they did not adapt to new realities, because they were still lost in the way they had done things in the beginning that were no longer innovative, they just kind of petered out and were lost to history. But it's a fascinating window into how the industry rapidly developed in the period between about 1978 and 1985 from these almost hobbyists peddling their wares on the side to real businesses run by real businessmen that used real business infrastructure to sell their games, which, as we'll see, does not describe Adventure International, but certainly describes its competition by the time it went out of business. This narrative almost sounds similar to what we've talked about before with a few other computer game companies, Mm -hmm. ones that straddled a few different eras. Yes, absolutely. Because it was all changing so rapidly. I mean, I'm talking about eras here. But at the same time, I'm talking about a window of time that was seven years, 1978 to 1985. It just moved so quickly. It went from being okay to be a programmer that maybe dabbled in business on the side and have some success to, no, you had to be businessmen, real capital B businessmen with those MBAs behind your name to be any kind of success, you know, kind of the electronic arts and Activisions of the world, which is, of course, something we've talked about in the context of both electronic arts and Activision. Then on the other side, you have companies like Adventure International or like Surtech, which I'm sure is one of the episodes in particular that you're thinking of, where we kind of talked about these old line computer game companies that did not change with the times. 
Surtec had some bigger hits than Adventure International did, which means that they were able to perpetuate their model longer than Scott Adams was able to perpetuate his. But it's really kind of the same idea. It's like you start out with these small businesses, then it becomes a serious business, and then the people that started it even though they were innovative in their time, even though they were pioneers in their time in both game content and in business, both sides of it, just can't keep up at that point anymore. Well, that certainly lays the groundwork. How about where did this company come from? Did Scott Adams set it up out of his bedroom in college, in high school? What's the story there? It really did start in the house. <laughs> that, that is literally where it began. Because this company is really uh, entirely wrapped up in Scott Adams, and uh, to a slightly lesser degree, uh, his wife, Alexis. Scott Adams, it's a familiar story. It's a story we've told many times before with many of these early companies and many of these early pioneers, was a tech geek going way back. So he uh, grew up in the Miami area in Florida. He first saw a computer when he was eight years old, and he was born in 1952. So we're talking around 1960, give or take. He saw his first computer when they were still the big hulking mainframes because there was a school field trip. They went on a field trip to the University of Miami and got to see the computer there, and they didn't get to interact with it. This is the mainframe era. These are multi-million dollar machines. They're not going to let the little kiddos go running around in the room where the hardware is touching everything. Bad idea. They never got to interact with it, but he saw it behind the glass uh, partitions that separated it from where they were. And as with so many of these early tech people, he was just fascinated by it because it was something out of science fiction, even if today it may not seem like something too impressive to look at because there's no screens, there's no monitors, there's no stuff going on. But back then, just seeing this hulking piece of metal with blinking lights and whirring tape and all of that was truly thrilling if you were into tech. It just so happened then that when he was attending high school, so flash forward a few years, his high school, North Miami High School, was part of a pilot program with the aforementioned University of Miami, in which they got a timesharing terminal at their school that was hooked up to a mainframe back at the university. And of course, we talked about this before. This was the start for so many of this first generation. Richard Garriott, I think, is probably the most prominent example of an individual we talked about in terms of games. If you want to get even more prominent than that, a couple of fellows by the name of Bill Gates and Paul Allen in this same kind of time frame a few years later, but still generally the same kind of time frame, were being introduced to computers in this manner through time sharing because it was the first time that you could reasonably and realistically get some computer use into a high school since all you had to do was provide them with a terminal and pay some uh, costs for the phone bills rather than having to get a whole mainframe or even a whole mini computer just for your school district. It's a familiar story. I mean, the Scott Adams story is the Richard Garriott story, is in some ways the Bill Gates story. It's you know repeated over and over and over again. This was when he first got to use a computer. He became adept with computers. He became actually interested in computers. I mean, it excited his imagination, obviously, when he was eight, but he didn't actually use one. Now he's getting to use one and he's excited by it. So after graduating high school in 1970, he attends the Florida Institute of Technology. He was hoping, because he knew he'd need a job to help pay for his education, and this was a time period when you could still do that, where you could put yourself through college, even sometimes graduate school, just by working a job on the side. A very different time, obviously, than uh, the way university costs work today. 
So he knew he'd need a job to help put himself through school, and he was hoping to get a job in the computer lab because he knew how to use computers. But, you know, computers were still relatively new. They were still something that were kept a little more guarded, and they weren't just going to let a freshman stroll in and get a job as an operator in the computer lab or whatever. Mail clerk was the best he could get as a job. So he did get a job with the computer lab, but it was as a clerk, not as a programmer or an operator. However, once he had his foot in the door, he was able to kind of show them that, yes, I actually do know a thing or two about using these things, because he was a good programmer. He was a bright kid. Very quickly, he not only got a job as a programmer, but within a very short period of time, I'm not sure if it was months or years, but a very short period of time, became the chief programmer on the school's entire accounting system. So they went from being like, no, Adams sort mail, Adams no operate computer, to here's the entire accounting system for the university. Knock yourself out. That is quite an impressive level of trust to put into a student. Absolutely. Yeah, it really is. And, and again, it's, it's kind of this weird period of time, right? Because computers are still fairly new. Even in the 1970s, they're still something that most people don't have a chance to interact with. If you can get really good at it, if you have an aptitude for it and you put in the time and the effort and are doing like Scott did and, you know, getting really enmeshed with this even when they're in high school, that could be enough. You didn't necessarily have to have degrees or formal training or years of experience. It would just be like, oh, my gosh, you can program a computer. We can use you. (laughs) He's working on his degree. He's working in the computer lab actually ends up taking a leave of absence from the university in 1975 to go work for RCA. He had an opportunity to work at a satellite facility on Ascension Island, which is kind of off the coast of Africa in in the middle of nowhere. Spent some time there working as an information analyst at the satellite facility. Went back to school to complete his BS in computer science. He left his school in 1975 to work for RCA. He came back less than a year later, finished his degree in 1976 in computer science at the Florida Institute of Technology. Then RCA signed him to another radar station in Antigua in the West Indies. He's kind of here in the middle of nowhere on the island, just kind of babysitting this thing. He has a lot of free time. There's a pretty powerful computer there, which uh, is needed to control the communications apparatus of this satellite facility. But the facility only ran during the day. It didn't run at night. But of course, as we've talked about many times before, back in this period of time, you did not power down computers. Very, very dangerous thing to do. (laughs) Exactly. So even though the computer was only being used during the day, they didn't shut it down at night. It was still running. As with many other enthusiastic hackers in places like MIT with Space War, etc., etc., Scott Adams decided to use this spare computer time for his own pursuits. He was a big fan of science fiction, an avid, avid reader, avid fan of comic books as well, Marvel superheroes, certainly into things like Star Trek and uh, all of that stuff going on in television as well. Just he's a general nerd of the day into all of these things. So he decides that a great way to use the computer during this period of time when it's not actually in use for official business but is still on is to take the classic Star Trek game, the Mike Mayfield Star Trek game, which we've talked about many times before, and of course, which you had a more advanced graphical version on your PC in the early 90s. He decided to take that Star Trek game and implement it on this computer. 
unlike a lot of computers, he didn't have to use that teletype. You know, the Mayfield Star Trek game was made for a teletype machine. And even in the mid-1970s, it was far more common to see teletypes hooked up to these kinds of computers than display terminals with a cathode ray tube. He had this big, fancy satellite radar apparatus, so he could actually use the radar screens, which, as I said, were not being used at this time, so it's not like anyone would care. He wasn't siphoning off something used for official business. He could use these radar screens to recreate the galaxy map on the game. Probably one of the more frivolous uh, uses for a multi-multi-million dollar uh, satellite tracking radar facility, but... Pretty fun. It's like uh, that scene in Avengers where, you know, Robert Downey Jr. is on the uh, airship and, you know, he points to like, and that man's playing Galaga. <laughs> it's kind of the same kind of thing. <laughs> well, not just that. Just imagine playing Star Trek and playing it on a gigantic screen. That's a different experience for any kind of game. Mm-hmm. I'm Absolutely. sure you remember when we were younger, went to my dad's workplace and use some of the big projection screens there to play StarCraft. It's just Mm -hmm. a fun thing to do. Absolutely. So that's one of the things he did in his spare time. He was somewhat interested in games. I mean, I don't think he was a huge, avid gamer. Uh, He certainly never got into, like, arcade games in the same way that some people did in that period. He was far more into games that were more strategic and cerebral, which should come as no surprise since he founded a company called Adventure International. (laughs) Yeah, he has that experience. He's there for nine months at this facility, and then he came back to Florida. He continued working for RCA for a little bit at their Cape Canaveral division. Then he moved to uh, just a small systems programming company, an unremarkable company in nearby Melbourne, Florida. It was here that he actually met his wife, his wife-to-be, Alexis. Alexis is an important part of the Adventure International story as well. Her role in the story isn't very well defined. Alexis, to my knowledge, hasn't really given any interviews. And the breakup of the company, Adventure International, and the breakup of the Adams marriage was both simultaneous and intertwined. I don't really have a lot of details there, so we're not going to really get into that side of things when we talk about the fall of the company in a little bit here. Just to kind of say this up front, it was messy personally and professionally. Therefore, Scott, quite understandably, doesn't really want to talk about that side of things. I mean, we interviewed Scott for the Video Game Pioneers Archive at the Smithsonian, so I've actually met him. He's an incredibly nice man, truly. Very genuine and very warm and very nice and very grateful for the time he got to have in the industry. That's just an an area that, you know, he made clear that he's not that interested in revisiting, which is entirely his right, and and I don't fault him for that at all. That's a bit of a long-winded way just to say that even though we're going to largely focus on Scott here, because Scott's is the story that we have documented, he's given lots of interviews, not just our Smithsonian interview, but many others as well, we can't lose track of the fact that Alexis was actually a pretty important part of the company as well and was very involved in the running of the company. She wasn't just the housewife that happened to be there or was serving as the secretary or the PR person because we need something for the wife to do with the company. No, she was integrally involved in running it. She was a psychology major at Miami-Dade Community College. As part of her psychology work there, she was actually involved in running a computer-driven dating service. 
one of these things where, you know, they develop a few algorithms and then have you answer some questions and then the algorithm kind of matches you up with people based on that. I mean, obviously, in a way, kind of like online dating today, but obviously much, much, much less sophisticated. These are pretty basic algorithms. A lot less bots. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. But this is something that was being experimented with. And so she was running this dating service and Scott Adams, I don't know, I didn't ask. I don't know if it's because he was really interested in finding somebody or just because he's a computer geek and he was like, okay, this might be a fun thing to just try out because it's an interesting use for a computer. He decided to make use of the service. And ironically, they met because she was running the service and he decided to use the service. So the online dating service itself might not have worked very well, but it still, in a roundabout way, brought these two people together. (laughs) So uh, they met through this, and then three months after they met, it was a very rapid courtship, three months after they met, they were married. Very soon after that, they moved to Central Florida, where Scott got another job as a programmer with a big telecommunications manufacturer by the name of Stromberg Carlson. It was while he was at Stromberg that the whole computer game thing starts to occur. So we have a couple of different things that were going on here at this point. First of all, he really is a tech geek. Like, he really likes just fiddling with the technology, which is true of a lot of this first generation, because we've talked about this before, but it bears repeating again. In the very early days, before there was a software industry... And before there was even a mass market computer industry, if you wanted to be involved in these games at all, you had to also love hardware. You couldn't just be like, oh, I will go down and get my computer from the computer store, and then I will use my love of programming and knowledge of programming languages to make an awesome computer game on the computer. Not how it worked for the very, very first generation. Because, as we've talked about before, we've done episodes on this, the very first computers, personal computers, microcomputers, whatever you want to call them, were hobbyist machines that you had to at least to some degree assemble yourself. You think we had problems back in the day with IRQ hell? This was worse. That's right. And we've talked about this before, too. It's like, but Jeffrey, I mean, I build my own computer today. I don't see what the big deal is. Yes, you stick some PCBs in some sockets. You stick some RAM and some sockets, you stick a chip in a socket, and you connect some wires. You know, you plug in some things, and you call it a day. That's what building a computer is today. Building a computer back then meant, okay, here's your board, here's your transistors, here's your soldering iron, have fun. If you solder it bad, problems. If your capacitor's bad, problems. (laughs) If you put the capacitor in with the wrong polarity, major problems. Exactly. So, you know, building a machine back then was something where you you had to like tinkering with hardware. You couldn't just be a software person. Adams was a true computer geek. And so as this hobbyist market started to develop, he actually did get involved in some of these early hobbyist computers. In fact, in 1975, he bought what he says, and, and we'll take him at his word for this, is the first computer sold by a company called Sphere. Now, the uh, Sphere Corporation, which released the Sphere One computer, named after the corporation, was a Utah company, because that's where the guys happen to be. Their Sphere One computer, while it's a little bit of a footnote today, it was interesting because it was kind of the first computer that had 
everything in a single box. What I mean by that is the really early hobbyist computers, the ones coming out in the same period, most of them, 74, 75, 76, etc. When you bought the computer, what you bought was, as I said, a board, some parts, and a case for that board and those parts. You didn't get a monitor with it. You got blinking lights on the front that kind of told you what was going on. You didn't get a keyboard with it. You flipped toggle switches because computers are programmed in binary. So, you know, flip one way is a one, flip the other way is a zero. Every time you flip it, it's a single binary notation. So flip it enough hundreds of times and you've entered a program. Oh, goody. This is why we love the PDP-11. <laughs> right? Very quickly, you could get expansion boards to most of these early computers because expandability was built into the hobbyist market from the very beginning. You could get boards that would then allow you to hook up to a television or a CRT. You could get a board to let you hook up to a keyboard. It's not like you would go forever without those things, but those were not considered the core parts of a computer in the very beginning. The Sphere... While it was still a kit, which means you still had to assemble it, it at least came with a keyboard and a monitor as part of the package. When it was assembled, it looked like what we consider to be a desktop computer today. You didn't have to go out and buy these basic components separate. You got them all in one. I'm looking at a picture of this computer right now. It looks way more advanced than anything of the era. Mm -hmm. This is something I would expect for an early... 80s, late 70s computer that came from Apple or something. It actually looks pretty nice. Mm -hmm. It is a boxy design, so Sphere is kind of a misnomer here. It doesn't have a Sphere <laughs> here. I don't look at the orb in order to contemplate my computer code games. No, I have a box. It is a very good box. I can see the screw holes on it that hold all the little case bits together. You got a keyboard that's literally built into the case. Mm -hmm. It's not too bad. Yeah, so especially for the time. He got himself one of these, and he started fiddling around, and he started doing games on it, because he already had a history, a small history with games even by this point, because he has a brother, Richard, who was very, very, very good with computer hardware. Adams, obviously, he's okay with assembling a kit, but his thing is more software than hardware, even though he's not afraid to get his hands dirty a little bit. But his brother was actually really good with hardware. So good, in fact, that he would later have his own computer peripheral accessory company for a while that had nothing to do with Scott and Adventure International and in games. It was a completely separate venture. In 1974, he actually custom-built himself a 16-bit microcomputer that he just he designed himself. So this is not something that was ever available on the market. The Adamses claim this is the first 16-bit microcomputer ever. I mean, that's one of those things that's impossible to prove, because quite frankly, it was a custom-built one-off, and if they did a custom-built one-off, then somebody else somewhere else in the country might have also done a custom-built one-off. Who's to say that it's really first? But it was definitely very early. He actually created a version of the Star Trek game to run on that computer, which had a display, which had a CRT, so again, it was graphical. So when he got the Sphere computer, he made a game like Tank, the arcade game Tank, to play on the Sphere, but which used custom controls that he kludged together in order to play on it. So he's already fiddling around with some of his own game designs, just for his own amusement. This is not stuff that's being published anywhere. 
Then when he joined Stromberg Carlson, by this time, we're getting into 1977 or 1978, I think 77 probably, but if not, then 78, we're getting into the time of the Trinity. This was right up Scott Adams' alley because he was okay with fiddling with the hardware. But what he really wanted to do was experiment with the programming. Now you have these computers coming out that are fully assembled right out of the box. You're not soldering anymore. And you can just turn them on and get down to the business of programming. So he buys himself TRS-80 and even starts a user group in Florida with some friends dedicated to learning and programming and having fun with the TRS-80. So he's getting more involved in this, and he's starting to make some simple games like a tic-tac-toe game and that kind of thing, doing these experiments. And he's starting to think, you know, it might be fun to make a program that uses language in some way. He's literary, too, as we've said. I mean, he's, he's not an author, even, even though he wrote his text-based adventure games. I don't think anyone would consider his prose to be in any way outstanding. I mean, he's definitely a computer programmer first, a writer second. But he likes that side of things, too. He's a voracious reader. For much of his life, he would read a book a day, you know, often small, you know, science fiction paperbacks, you know, a few hundred pages. But I mean, he's a voracious reader. He likes language as well. And so he starts to think it might be fun if I made something that uses language. I mean, this especially makes sense on something like the TRS-80, which, as we've said before, was a character-based machine. It did not have real graphics in the way we would think of them. It didn't have a bitmap screen. It didn't have sprites. It just had a character set. Doing text on it is something that only made sense. And it was right in this period of time when he's fiddling around with his TRS-80, starting to do some primitive little game experiments and starting to think, wouldn't it be nice to use something with language, that he discovers that the IT department at Stromberg Carlson has a little game on their computer called Adventure. May have heard of that one. I may have heard of that one, but I don't think it's the same adventure as the one that is on the Atari VCS. No, that one is also based on our adventure, which, of course, we've talked about many times and which we put on our list of most influential games when we did that whole thing. The Crotherwood Adventure. Explore the cave, find the treasures in the cave, escape from the cave, deal with the thief, deal with the dragon, solve puzzles. Classic text-based adventure. Like everybody else at this time, he was fascinated by it. We've talked about this, but this thing burned through the tech community. The people that were programmers at this time, I mean, this is still true today, but it's really true then because it's just such a small circle. The people that were interested in programming, the people that were interested in learning to master the machine at that time, what fascinated them was that they had this device that they had complete control over through their commands. Then adventure comes along and is like, here's a whole world inside the machine, a whole world where you have that exact same level of control, where your commands dictate how you advance in this world. It's a game by programmers for programmers, if you get right down to it. Not that the general public didn't also find, obviously, some interest in it. But I mean, for a programmer, this was crack. The legend goes that when it first went out on over the ARPANET, it destroyed all productivity in every computer lab that had an ARPANET node for two weeks when it came out. And of course, that's exaggerated some for dramatic effect, but it's really true that it lit a fire under that generation of programmers that is almost hard to understand today. I mean, obviously, we all get really deeply into the games that we get into today as well, but it's just this was unprecedented. There was nothing like this before, because even though there had been games before, they were finite games. You're controlling your laser on the bottom of the screen in Space Invaders. You're moving your little E for Enterprise around a single-screen, two-dimensional map, shooting at Klingons. 
there'd never been a world before that felt expansive and infinite and that you had complete control over how you progressed through it. It was truly remarkable, as we, of course, talk about in more depth in our 100 Most Influential Games series when we covered Adventure. Scott Adams was the same as all of these other people. It lit a fire inside of him. He started coming in early and staying late. He lied to his wife, told Alexis that he had a project at work that required extra time. They were making him work extra hours. But what he was actually doing was coming in early and staying late so that he could master adventure. It took him about a week. But he conquered it over the course of a week and was like, this is it. This is what I want to do. I've been thinking about doing a game involving language. This is all about language. Go north, get lamp, kill dragon. Let's do adventure. So he told his friends, I'm going to do adventure on the TRS-80. And do you know what they did, Jeff? (laughs) That's exactly right. Let's remember now that the TRS-80 is a 16K machine kilobytes. You're not running adventure. As primitive as adventure is compared to what's out there today, you're not running adventure without a couple of hundred spare K lying around on your computer. This was uh, met with quite a bit of skepticism. And derision. Exactly. But this, this is what he wanted to do. Obviously, he can't just recreate adventure. It's too big. He's not even quite trying to make a scaled-down version of that adventure. Like, he wants to do a same kind of game, but he's not going to set it in the same cave with the same treasures. However, he does call his game Adventure. The game that he's making at this point is just going by the name Adventure. It develops kind of organically. This is the way that Scott Adams, in his own explaining of things, says that he basically did all of his games. He develops games in a very kind of stream of consciousness kind of way. He doesn't plan it all out in advance. He doesn't do a design doc. He doesn't decide on key plot points and then fill in the gaps or something. But he he takes it step by step. In this case, he knew he wanted to do a game like Adventure, so it was going to be a game with puzzles, with a parser, with text commands, and with treasures to find, because that's what the goal of Adventure was. That's what many of the very first text adventure games were. They were treasure hunts, because they were all taking their lead from Adventure, which of course took its lead from Dungeons & Dragons. Descend into the dungeon, find the loot. Descend into the cave, find the loot. Same difference. He decided, okay, well, it's there's got to be treasure, so there'll be treasure scattered around, and uh, okay, just like adventure, we're going to be in a wilderness location. So I'm in a wilderness location. If I'm in a wilderness, what's there going to be? Well, a wilderness uh, will often have a forest in it, right? So over this way, there's going to be a forest. And okay, so I walk into the forest. I'm paraphrasing, but this is basically how he described it to us when we interviewed him at the Smithsonian. So I walk into a forest. Okay, so there's a big tree in this forest. So if I see a big tree, you know, I'm probably going to want to climb that tree, right? Because I'm curious. It's big. So uh, we can have them climb the tree and there'll be something to do on top of the tree. What should they find on top of the tree? Well, it should be X, Y, Z. And that's kind of how he built the game. And that's how he built his subsequent games, too. He would think of a theme. In this case, the theme was treasure hunting. He would think of a broad overarching location. We're not talking about sketching out individual terrains or rooms or anything yet, but a broad individual setting, in this case, wilderness. Then he would start to think about what objects you would find in a wilderness. And those would start to be the kind of objects that you can interact with in the game or obstacles you have to overcome in the game. And then he'd start fleshing it out more, like, you know, okay, so I'll start a wilderness, can have a forest, I'll start in the forest, I'll go to the tree, I'll climb the tree. Then he'll start stringing it together like that. 
that's kind of how he made all of his adventure games. That's what he started doing with adventure. And of course, he had to use a lot of tricks to get this to work. One trick that he used is that the commands were actually only two letters in length. So you would type in full words for your verbs, but the parser actually only paid attention to the first two letters you typed because he didn't have enough memory to do a parser that had a sophisticated vocabulary of actual words. This could lead to some hilarious situations, depending on how you, the adventurer, decided to solve the puzzle. I will give one example of that that is very fun from Adventureland. At one point, there's a bear, a sleeping bear, that blocks your way. Actually, I'm not sure if it's sleeping or not, but the point is there's a bear that blocks your way. It's kind of a mountain path, so there's a ledge. You don't have anything that you can kill the bear with. Obviously, if you try to go past the bear, bear's going to eat you. What you actually have to do is you have to startle the bear in order to get it to lose its balance and tumble off the ledge. What you're supposed to do is type the command scream bear. Then when you do that, the response that the program gives is that the bear is so startled he falls off the ledge. The game is really only paying attention to those first two letters, S-C-B-E. The rest of what you put in doesn't matter. This could be urban legend that somebody actually did this, like, organically, but it's certainly something you can make happen, whether someone discovered this organically when playing the game. So let's say that you've been stuck on the bear puzzle for a while. You've been typing different words, and they just haven't worked. Well, a lot of times when you're playing an adventure game like this, you get frustrated with the Guess the Parser game, and you just start typing random things because you're bothered, perturbed, upset, dare I say angry, at the game and the parser. So let's say you're so mad at this darn bear that you just type in screw bear. Well, that will work because the first two letters of screw are SC. You can type in screw bear, at which point it'll say the bear is so startled he falls off the ledge. But I wanted to scam the bear. (laughs) Right. Or you can scam the bear. But I, I particularly like screw bear because, you know, that basically means... He had sex with the bear, and it startled him so much he fell off the ledge. I mean, I'd be startled. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, that's kind of a humorous example of, of how the—but that's the way he had to do it. It's remarkable that he could get this game to work at all on a 16K computer. He creates his adventure, which, as I said, he just calls adventure. And he shares it with the members of his TRS-80 user group that, that he had founded that we talked about. The user group is like— this is actually pretty fun. I think you could maybe sell this game. So he was like, okay, I'll try to sell this game. At this point, he's not founding a company yet. And at this point, we're talking about late 1978 to get the time frame in. In late 1978, as we talked about in our early Computer Game Companies episode, we kind of did an episode on the early days, there really wasn't a lot out there through which you could sell a computer game. On the West Coast, there had been a couple of companies that had been established that dabbled in games. And in fact, at one point, I think still on the sphere, Scott was going to sell uh, one of the programs that he had made to the company Programma International, which we discussed in our early computer game company episode. He didn't because that whole, you know, sphere computer scene kind of fell apart. So there was no point anymore. There were a couple of things like that. There weren't really publishers, per se. There were a couple of very early companies just coming in, but at this point, it was just like a couple of guys getting together to publish, and Scott Adams wasn't ready to go down that route yet. I mean, he still had his day job at Stromberg Carlson that he was mostly focused on. So instead, he decided to submit his program to the magazines of the day. We talked about this in that early computer game company episodes as well. 
how the magazines of the day, they had type-in submissions where people were giving them the basic code for a program that they had made, and it would just be in the magazine as a type-in listing. Well, the magazines were starting to realize, especially now that these, what were called often at the times, appliance computers, by which we just mean that they were fully assembled and the general public could use them like an appliance. You could use it like your washing machine. You didn't have to build your washing machine first. These appliance computers were coming out and they realized that these software listings were actually more valuable than just giving away as part of the cost of the magazine. So they started taking some of the better program submissions that they were getting and actually selling them on cassette tape for a price. Adams had been uh, submitting programs. I'm not sure if he had submitted any before this or if he submitted them at the same time, but he did have a tic-tac-toe program that he submitted as well. He got in touch with SoftSide, which was kind of the premier consumer magazine dedicated to the TRS-80. And he also got in touch with Creative Computing, which is a magazine that was very influential that we've talked about several times before that was dedicated to personal computing in general. Whether that personal computing was being done on a mini computer or a hobbyist computer or one of these new appliance microcomputers, they were just interested in any form of personal computing. They were platform agnostic. But basic was their lingua franca, of course. He reached out to both of these magazines and offered the game to them. Both companies accepted. In these very early days, exclusivity was not a thing because the market was so small that a single company wasn't going to tap the entire market anyway. From the programmer's perspective, you don't want to be tied in with just one company because they're not going to be able to get your product everywhere. There is no distribution at this time. From the publisher's perspective, they don't care because even though it would be nice in some perfect little fantasy land to be able to sell these games across the entire country, they can't do it anyway. So it's nothing to them if you let a few other people have it as well. He let both of these companies have it, and they both released it on cassette tape as adventure for the princely sum of $24.95, which in late 1970s money, that's like Ocarina of Time money, you know, on the N64. I mean, that's some money for this little cassette-based 16K computer adventure game. It's worse than that. So let's say it's 25 bucks after tax. Uh-huh. That's 1978, you said, right? Yes, so 79, really, but 78, 79 is not going to make a huge difference. $108.79 today. All right, so that's more than Ocarina of Time money. (laughs) That's the collector's box edition and then some. That's right. You're supposed to get a statue with your game when you spend that much money on it. (laughs) I want my leather-bound guidebook, my cloth map, maybe some guide stones or runes. Exactly. Creative computing was much more reasonable. SoftSide sold it for $24.95 through their TSE software, which was their software company. Creative computing sold it for a mere $14.95. A little more considerate on the pocketbook there, but still substantial. That is Ocarina of Time money. $58.62. There you go. So, yeah, I mean, this stuff was expensive. Limited distribution because it was mail order. Creative Computing and SoftSide, I mean, they were doing this through mail order. They weren't putting them in stores. So not only did you have to lose your money, a significant amount of it, you had to wait two to six weeks for delivery. Yeah, exactly. There's no drop shipping at this time, kids. There is none of that at all. Right, exactly. So then you might ask, okay, well, so he's making these for the TRS-80, right? Right. And the TRS-80 is put out by Tandy, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Tandy owns a little chain of stores called Radio Shack, right? Theoretically, yes. Yes. So why wasn't he selling these games in Radio Shack? 
The answer to that is that that's not how Radio Shack worked. That's never how Radio Shack worked in its entire existence. Radio Shack was an outlet for Tandy products because Tandy came first. Tandy actually bought Radio Shack. Tandy didn't found Radio Shack. They purchased it. Tandy was making stuff, decided that they should have an outlet to sell their stuff, bought a failing Boston area retailer called Radio Shack that had like less than a dozen stores, and then just blew it up to thousands of locations all over the country. And the idea was that Tandy would make products and Radio Shack would sell those products. It was all exclusive. It was all private label. They would sometimes make outside deals with certain companies for certain products, but then it would be private labeled to Tandy and Radio Shack. It was not and never has been, never was a general retailer. They sold TRS 80s in stores. The thing that gave the TRS-80 its early advantage in the market is you had 3,000 or whatever Radio Shack stores all over the country, and they were selling these computers. But they did not sell third-party software for the computer. He couldn't go to Radio Shack and say, please buy my game, because that is not how Radio Shack worked. You couldn't even go there and say, let me put this on a box on your counter. No, exactly. It's not like, because we've talked about how in the early computer game market, you'd put some games in some Ziploc baggies and you'd go down the street to the corner computer store and be like, I have this game. Can I put it on your wall? And the corner computer store, which is always looking for an excuse to sell a machine and games are a great way to market a machine, will be like, sure, put it on my wall and, and we'll do that. Well, Radio Shack did not do that. They would have been like, thank you. No. Good day, sir. However, once the game got out there a little bit through this mail order, and of course it was extensively advertised in both magazines, he even took out full-page ads, and then even wrote an article for Byte, another magazine, where he talked about his system in some detail and discussed adventure games. I believe, actually, and, and more research needs to be done, but I believe that Scott Adams is probably one of the primary reasons that adventure games got to be called adventure games. Obviously, adventure was called adventure, and they're called adventure games because they all came from adventure. Infocom, for instance, always called it interactive fiction. They didn't call them adventure games. Scott Adams, very early on, he wrote articles describing what an adventure game was. He took out full-page ads in magazines where he talked about the adventure games he was selling. He named his first game Adventure, initially. And, of course, in late 1979, he founds the company Adventure International. I think it's his promoting of that name, Adventure, and tying it in so closely with the genre of games that he's making is probably a big part of the reason why that became the term instead of interactive fiction or something else by which we recognize these games today. As this game gained a little bit of traction in this hobbyist space, it did attract a little bit of retail attention. And while Radio Shack itself, Tandy itself, would not buy from independent authors, some Radio Shack stores were actually franchises rather than company-owned. So those locations wouldn't necessarily take the same corporate line. They had some freedom to decide what they would put in their stores. So his big break came sometime in the early to mid, I think maybe spring 1979, maybe a little later. I should say that the games were first advertised in the January 1979 issues of these magazines. Because of the way magazine dating works, the January 1979 issue would have been on the market in December 1978, most likely. The game was on sale by the end of 1978, but really wasn't getting a lot of traction until 1979. should also mention this is the earliest computer, microcomputer, I should say, adventure game. Because Adventure was not ported to a microcomputer system until Microsoft, of all companies, did it in 1979, you know, the original Adventure. 
Zork, even though Zork was made in 1977, Infocom didn't come together until later, and Zork was not released until 1980. There were some other contemporary games of Scott Adams that were made available in program listings and whatnot, but his was the first one that was commercially sold as near as we can tell, was his adventure game, very first for microcomputers. I hate using that word first, because then something always comes along to prove you're wrong. But so far, this one's held up and will no doubt not hold up at some point in the future. Either way, it was very early. It came to the attention of a Chicago area franchisee of Radio Shack, who owned his own Radio Stack store up there. And he was very impressed by it. And he actually ordered 50 copies of the game, which in 1978 computer game business, that is a huge order. Mm-hmm. Scott, he's a neophyte at this. He tries to sell them to him. It's like, okay, fine. That'll be $24.95 per copy. Garcia, the guy that owns this place, had to be like, no, 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 no. Let me tell you about a little thing called wholesale. (laughs) (laughs) Because, of course, you can't sell to uh, the stores at the retail price because then the store doesn't make any money. They have to take their profit out as well. So you sell at a lower price to retailers so that they can make some money on your game, too. Then the other problem, of course, is now he needs packaging because he's putting these out himself. I mean, obviously, if you ordered a cassette from the magazine, it would come in a little cassette case or whatever. But now he needs packaging that can be displayed in the store. So he's kind of at a loss on what to do. But you see, uh, they just had a child. Alexis had just had a baby. So they had a lot of baby supplies around. And he realized one day that a baby bottle liner was the perfect size to package a cassette tape in. Hmm. You know, you just get the baby bobble liner, you put the cassette in it, and then you staple it shut and with a little card of some kind on top that proclaims, hey, this is me. This is my game. It's the Ziploc baggie approach, but just with a slight twist, because he didn't use Ziploc baggies. He used baby bottle liners to package these early games. He's having some success with that. As 1979 goes on, you know, he's getting some more orders and he's getting some wholesale distribution now as well, besides what he's doing in the magazines. So he makes the decision to move the company out of the spare bedroom of the house (laughs) and actually buy a space in uh, about October 1979. He buys a warehouse with a storefront and makes that the new home of this computer game operation. Because there happens to be a storefront, and this was not one of the qualifications that they had for purchasing this building. It just happened to have a retail space in front of the warehouse. Because it had a storefront, he decided that he should go ahead and open a computer game store, a retail store, in that little retail space. I do believe that that's the origin of Adventure International. Now, if you ask Scott Adams today, he'll say that, no, he founded Adventure International to sell the game, that that's what came first, and then they moved, and then they had the retail space, so they opened the store. I'm not so sure that's the case, and and this is not provable. Because it's his memory versus speculation, and there's not like any hard evidence. But there are a couple of early sources that seem to indicate that the computer game store he opened was the Adventure International Computer Store. There are early ads in the computer magazines, the same ones that he's selling his games in, that refer to the Adventure International Computer Store. As near as I could tell, I could have missed something. It's not like I went through every page of every issue. There's an advertisement for the computer store before there is an advertisement for games by the company, Adventure International. When he was first selling these, he was just selling these as games by Scott Adams. They were not games from a company. They were just games from Scott Adams. 
So I think that the computer game store might have been Adventure International first, and then he decided the software company would also be Adventure International. Even if that's not the case, they happened at almost the same time. Move into a new building, have a retail space, have a real business growing. Let's give it a name, Adventure International. Adventure, because that's what he's selling, an adventure, and he plans to do more of them. International, because it sounds impressive. All there is to it. He and Alexis are partners in this venture. She is very involved in running it. She actually had a little bit of background in business. Scott himself had a minor in business, so he had a little bit of business know-how. Alexis had actually run her own business for a time. She had actually been a manager at a chain of restaurants in Miami before they were married for a brief period of time. She had also had a mail-order recipe business, cookbooks and recipes that were sold via mail order. So she had actually had a little bit of business experience, and so she was involved as well. And she had some good ideas. Like, for instance, I told you about that Byte Magazine article. Scott, because he is a hobbyist, he's a nerd, he's excited about this stuff, when he wrote the article for Byte talking about his adventure system, he was actually going to include the code for his adventure engine in that magazine article. And Alexis was like, maybe you should keep that a secret for now so that we can use that and exploit it later, <laughs> which, you know, was, was a good idea. It's interesting. Alexis, you know, I talked about how he had to lie <laughs> while he was playing adventure, while he was going into the office. He was secretly playing adventure while he was supposed to be working on projects. Well, as the creation of his adventure game started to take hold, he was spending most of his spare time working on this game. Alexis, she's pregnant and then, of course, gives birth and and is a young mother, and she's feeling more and more like a computer widow throughout this. So at one point, she decides that enough is enough. Scott himself has told this story many times, so it's, it's not telling any dirty laundry or secrets. Alexis finally snaps, puts all of his discs in the oven, and delivers an ultimatum that basically says, you're going to spend some time with me. Or your computer programming is done, and so are your computer programs. Not like he had backups. This was literally the only copy of the adventure game that he was working on that was in this oven. So if she had turned on that oven, (laughs) bye-bye adventure. Redo from start. Obviously, they reconciled. And as I said, she was very instrumental in the business and the finances of the business. And very involved in the running of the retail store, of the game, mail order operation, of all of it. But she was a little bit put out for a time. So because of this, he does make the decision to incorporate her more into all aspects of the business and actually collaborates with her, uses some of her ideas in his second adventure game, which is also a 1979 game. And that's the game Pirate Adventure, which was also in some of the magazines called Pirate's Cove instead. Scott Adams' early games, really all of his games, because he never really grows beyond his early games, they're all very simple. The parser is very simple because it has to be. It has to fit in 16K. The puzzles are fine, but they're nothing to write home about. The writing is serviceable, but not great prose. His games are fine. There's nothing inherently wrong with them. They're well-coded and all of that. It's just, as much as anything, they're taking over the market because he is the market (laughs) on microcomputers. In his early games, he still tried to do a little twist on every game that he did. He tried to make things a little different each time. Adventure, his first game, was very much a treasure hunt in the vein of the original adventure, Crother Woods. So he decided the pirate adventure should have more of a through line, should focus on an end objective instead of just going willy-nilly, solving puzzles, gathering treasure. So he started with a theme, most likely decided, okay, I'm going to have an end goal instead of willy-nilly treasure hunting. 
he decided then on a setting. So I'll do a pirate kind of thing because that's fun. Very much inspired by Treasure Island, Robinson Crusoe, the, the classics of the uh, pirate adventure genre or the shipwreck adventure genre in the case of Robinson Crusoe. And constructed a game where the idea was that you had to build a ship to reach an island on which there is treasure, very much like Treasure Island. I mean, there's still treasure to get at the end of the day, but it's not, there are 15 treasures hidden all over the map, start exploring the map and solve puzzles to find the treasure. It's no, here's a focused through line. You have to build the ship to go to the island to find the treasure to get to the fun effing part of the game. I thought this was just proto-Monkey Island. (laughs) I mean, in a way, in a way. That's Pirate Adventure in a nutshell. So now he's got two games. Because when he finishes this one, it's even still before Adventure International. He's still selling through Creative Computing. He's still selling through SoftSide. He's still doing the mail order thing. He starts doing them as a double set. Because a cassette has two sides. So one side has Adventure and one side has Pirate Adventure. This is the point where he finally has to distinguish. Because Adventure is a very generic name, and as we said, is the name of another game. It's kind of weird that he has that. So he starts referring to the original Adventure as Land Adventure, two words, to distinguish it from Pirate Adventure. Then he starts flipping the order of the words, and he starts calling it Adventure Land, two words. Eventually, that just gets merged together, and it becomes one word, Adventure Land. Anyone that's at least vaguely familiar with the games that we've been talking about so far and is confused because he's like, why does he keep calling it Adventure? Scott Adams didn't call it Adventure. It was Adventureland. Well, it became Adventureland after Pirate Adventure existed. So that's how we got that name, Adventureland, as a way to distinguish it from his second game. So he's got the two games. Alexis is helping out more. They move into the new retail space. They start soliciting other games because now they're selling games, not just their own games. So they become an early hub. They have the retail space, but they also start putting out a catalog. They start becoming a proper publisher and they start taking submissions from all over the place. They're very similar to some of these other companies that we talked about, like Programma and Soft Tape in our early Computer Game Companies episode. We probably mentioned Adventure International in that episode as well. We just didn't go into the same amount of depth. They start taking on some of that form, and so they start accepting submissions from other people. Doug Carlston, founder of Broderboond, very important company. When he makes his first game, he submits it to Adventure International. He submits it multiple places, because as I said, exclusivity was not a thing in this time period. But one of the places he submits it to is Adventure International. Scott Adams helped... Doug Carlston get his start in the industry, not just by selling the game, but also helping him out by analyzing the code and pointing out some bugs to him and helping him improve the game. So Scott Adams has a role in nurturing the founding of what eventually becomes Broderboond. He also starts giving some regional rights to other individuals to sell his games because he's got his retail space in Florida and he's got his mail order catalog, but he doesn't have boots on the ground all over the country. He doesn't have sales staff like that. An enterprising young man by the name of Ken Williams, Hmm. who's already selling his own games at his little company, Online Systems, up and down the California coast, inquires about selling Adventure International's games up and down the California coast, too. And so Scott Adams grants him the exclusive rights to sell Adventure International products in Southern California. Ken Williams uses this as a base to build his own software distribution network. 
Ken Williams then decides that he can't, as we talked about in our Sierra episodes, that he can't really run a distribution operation, which is a fancy way of saying selling games out of the trunk of his car, quite frankly, and a software publisher at the same time. So he sells off the distribution stuff to Bob Leff, who found SoftSell, which is the influential, first, most important, prestigious computer game distributor to come into existence. So Scott Adams was indirectly involved in the creation of the first major computer game distributor, completely by accident. That's not what he was going for. But by giving it to Ken, who then gave it to Bob, that's what you got is this entity soft sell. So, I mean, he's at a nexus here. He's nurturing Doug Carlston. He's nurturing the growth of online systems, which becomes Sierra. He's inadvertently creating the first software distributor. He's releasing his own games, which are having some success in the market. He's got his mail order catalog. He expands his retail presence. At their height, they had seven or eight retail stores around Florida. So he's an innovator in this early period, and he's innovating a little bit in games, too. He's putting a twist in every one. So after Pirate Adventure, he does one called Mission Impossible, which, yes, copyright, but nobody cares at the very beginning of the industry here. This is still 1979. He makes like seven games in 1979, all using his same adventure engine. So he's already got the framework. All he's doing is coming up with new scenarios, new puzzles, new prose. So he's very prolific in the first year of the company. For Mission Impossible, he decides, let's do another twist. Let's not have this be about treasure at all. Let's have a secret agent thing where there's a bomb and you have to defuse the bomb before time runs out. So he makes it this time limit game where you have to do all of these actions in time to complete the scenario to defuse the bomb. There's, there's no treasure. It's not even a treasure game. He's moving in another direction, in another fantasy setting, secret agent. Then he does a game called The Count, which is very interesting. It's kind of gothic horror. It takes place in Transylvania. The Count is Count Dracula. He decides that in this one, there's going to be a final goal, just like in Mission Impossible, which is kill the Count. But the time limit thing is kind of not gelling so well. So instead of like a time limit, let's make a game with the passage of time without necessarily that strict countdown to zero. So he implements a day-night cycle in the game, and he implements certain events that only happen at certain times of day. Now, it's not that complex. This is not Majora's Mask, where you have all of these different characters with all of these different goals on all of these different schedules. It's not even Infocom games like Deadline, where you have a murder mystery where there are characters coming and going and moving all around. It's just a day-night cycle, and there are a couple of specific events that only happen at specific times. It's still very rudimentary. It's still very simple. We're still on our 16K TRS-80. You can't simulate an entire world. Right. But that is still innovative for the time. Every game that he's doing in this period is taking a slightly different twist on the standard adventure formula. I don't want to be insulting, but I mean, they're, they're not particularly special. They don't have the same quality to them as an Infocom game does. But he's still doing interesting things, and he's doing it on computers that have no business running this stuff in the first place. Obviously, Zork eventually comes out on the TRS-80 and all of that. Infocom does that. But first, they had to divide the game in three parts. You know, Zork 1, 2, and 3 were basically the complete mainframe game chopped up, and they added some new stuff as well. But basically, the original game chopped up. And they had to come up with a whole virtual machine in order to make that happen. Scott Adams doesn't have a virtual machine. He's just doing it on these 16K computers. They're not sophisticated, but they're interesting enough, and, and they're innovative enough. This is kind of the peak right here. 
we spend so much time on just the first couple of years of the company, and then we're going to kind of blaze through, in a way, the rest of the company. And, and that's just because this was kind of the high watermark. At this point, he's the innovator. He's cutting edge. He's one of the first people thinking about retail. He's one of the first people thinking about distribution outside of the area that he can reach in his car on a day trip. He's one of the first people thinking about, let's not just make every adventure game have the same kind of scenario. Let's have different types of scenarios like countdowns or event cycles or whatever else. Very quickly, the industry starts catching up in sophistication. He's kind of at the tail end of this first phase where you have these kind of catch-all companies. So over the next few years, the company continues to exist mostly as a platform for some of Scott's adventure games mixed in with a ton of stuff that they get as submissions from other people. And he does hire a few employees, too. He has a staff of about four programmers after a while as the company grows. It's kind of a grab bag. The catalog grows to be like 100, 150 programs in size. Most of them are just tiny little games that aren't particularly significant, because at this point, if you have a really good game, you can go to a publisher like Broderbund or Sierra, and they will give you a generous royalty between 20 and 30% for your game, and then they will get you national retail distribution through some of these early distributors that are starting to appear like SoftSell. So if you have a truly quality game, you can make a lot more money, have a lot more success going through one of this new breed of publisher like Broderbund or Sierra than you can going through Adventure International, which is kind of the last vestige of the soft tape programma model of let's take a bunch of submissions, put them all out in a catalog and people can pick and choose. But there'll be a few classics mixed in with a lot of junk. That model failed, except Adventure International kept it going because they were pretty low overhead because they stayed small, and his own adventure games were successful enough. They were kind of the crown jewels that it could sustain the rest of this kind of mail-order business that they were doing on the side. You see, the adventure games did as well as they did in the early days precisely because they worked well on these limited computers with limited memory. As we move a little later into the 80s, 1981, 1982, we start to have the home computer phenomenon that we've talked about before. We haven't done a full-fledged episode on the home computer wars yet. One of these days we will, and it'll probably be a multi-part episode. But we have talked about it in the context of how it aided the video game crash, which, of course, we've talked about many times. You had these computers coming in that were under $600, under $500, under $400, under 200 eventually even under 100 as the price wars kept going, that were really geared towards use as game machines. They had cartridge ports just like a console would. You didn't necessarily have to use cassette tape or floppy. They were driving into this space, computers like the VIC-20 from Commodore and the TI-99 from Texas Instrument, and then a little later on the Commodore 64. The Atari 400 would be another example, these kind of home computers. These systems couldn't really do the elaborate adventure games. They couldn't do the Infocom stuff very well. Yes, Infocom released stuff for the TRS-80, but the TRS-80 also expanded to have more memory. You could expand it. The early Sierra graphical adventure games, these weren't on these computers either. Adventure games are a lot bigger than little action games. So Scott Adams basically had the market on some of these home computers all to himself. Now, there were probably comparably fewer people interested in playing adventure games on these computers because they were geared more towards the non-tech-savvy, more Twitch game kind of crowd. 
But if you wanted an adventure on one of these programs, you were probably going to buy a Scott Adams adventure. So by cornering this little portion of the market, it gave them enough profit that they could keep this thing going. And then, you know, maybe you don't get a lot of stuff out of the mail order catalog, but there's really not much overhead to having the mail order catalog anyway. It's like publish on demand today. It's not like they had to manufacture a bunch of discs and boxes and labels and whatnot in advance and put them on a shelf. If they get an order for a game, then they can prepare the game, right? Pop in a back room, put in a few tapes and press copy. (laughs) Right. And later discs. That kind of kept them going. But the problem is, because they were kind of in this little niche, the product never really changed very much. The product started falling behind. He never advanced his adventure system until very late in the company's history. There could be a lot of reasons for that. Don't know exactly why. In the book Software People, uh, which Doug Carlston wrote about the early industry, he indicates that Scott just didn't have time for it as the managing of the company took up more and more of his time because they're managing the catalog, they're managing the retail locations. He does have a team of programmers making some games he has to manage. So as management took over more, he didn't have the time to really upgrade the system, underpinning this very much. Could be that. It could be that he he just didn't have an interest. Uh, It's possible he just decided that what he had was good enough, especially since he was doing well on those lower memory machines were kind of his bread and butter. Even a slightly better system wouldn't have necessarily been able to compete with an Infocom or a Sierra anyway, so possibly that was part of the calculus too. I'm just speculating here. For whatever reason, he didn't really advance them. He did finally add some graphics in 1982. He developed an extension to his adventure engine called Saga. He re-released the early games with some primitive pictures, done using draw and fill just like the early Sierra adventure games, just static images. He didn't update the games themselves at all. He just added pictures to the existing games. He never really took it to the next level, and so the games were being left behind because the stuff coming out of Infocom and Sierra was much more sophisticated. Then the home computer market started collapsing, which we've talked about and which someday we'll do an episode on. You know, these computers like the VIC-20, the cheaper Atari 8-bits, the TI-99, they were shuffled off and shuffled out. That whole low-end market kind of crashed, and it basically just left the venerable at this point Apple II in the form of the Apple IIe and the Commodore 64. Then you got some 16-bit machines coming in as well. In the low-end market, the 8-bit market, you're basically in the United States just talking about those two machines. Well, his output just isn't impressive on those machines. I mean, the Apple II, it's not the greatest thing in the world anymore by 1983, 1984, but it does have a bitmap screen. It does have more memory. So whether you're taking the text-only Infocom approach or you're taking the let's add fancier and fancier graphics Sierra approach, you can do more with a game engine on the Apple II than Scott Adams is doing with his game engine that has really found its niche on the TRS-80 and the VIC-20 and the TI-99, etc., etc. He really wasn't advancing his computer platform to the newer eras. Right. Commodore 64 is really an action-oriented machine, first and foremost. The people playing on that are not really the text adventure crowd. So he's losing a large portion of this market because he hasn't advanced his technology. Distribution has changed. He's getting squeezed out. It's, it's ironic. He basically helped found soft sell, not directly, but indirectly through the chain of sales. But then his catalog just didn't work in the new distributor era. 
when SoftCell and MicroD and some of these other distributors came in, it changed the way the computer game business worked. Because as, as we talked about just a little bit before, the way it worked, if you were a Sierra or a Sirius or a Broderbund or an Adventure International in the very early days, kind of pre-1982, is that you would make some phone calls, drive around within a radius of where you were, and be like, hey, I've got this game. I've got these five games. I've got these 10 games. Can I put a few copies of these games up in your store? These computer stores would say, sure, go ahead and do that. Now that distribution's coming in, it doesn't work that way anymore. Because if you have 10 games, it doesn't matter how talented you are. If you have 10 games, there are probably two or three or four of those games that are better than all the other games that you've made. Or at the very least, strike a different chord with the public, are more popular with the public. If you're dealing with software companies individually and they say they have 10 games, it's like, ah, sure, I'll take five of the good one and I'll take two or three of that one. You know, you you can do catalog sales like that. Well, once it's going through distribution, once you're dealing with a middleman, the distributor, the distributor has access to all the computer game companies. So they're not going to want to take all 10 of your games. They might not even want to take one of your games. Exactly. We're dealing with the bar being risen here. Mm -hmm. He goes from being a very small fish in a very small pond to being a small fish in a large lake. Exactly. Soft Cell, MicroD, these kind of companies, they're going to say, okay, I've looked over your game products, and I think these two or three are going to be the hits. I will take those. I don't care about the rest. That doesn't mean that they can't still sell the rest. I mean, they find ways to scrape by selling their lesser titles. But the ones that are going to get the most shelf space are the ones that are the hits. And Soft Cell, MicroD, etc., they're not going to want to take lots of copies of all your games. Remember, the Adventure International model is the old model still. It's the Programma model. It's the Soft Tape model. We have a hundred products. Go frolic in the fields of cassettes. And pick that very special cassette out that speaks to you and buy that out of our hundred titles. They can't sell to soft sell under those circumstances. They can't deal with distribution in that way. Soft sell is going to be like, okay, but what's your best couple of sellers and we'll take those. Even their best sellers, even the adventure games that sell better than the others, you know, it's not enough on its own. They need that broad base of sales that they get out of the catalog. As mail order becomes more and more marginalized, as distribution takes more and more control of the retail space, they don't have the capacity to eke out a living by making a little money on a lot of games. They have to make a lot of money on a few games, and they're just not set up to do that. That's just not what their model is based around. On top of these structural problems, on top of the fact that the technology in the games is falling behind, retail and sale of games is changing, they hit a couple of other bad breaks. First of all, they did get in close with the TI-99. Texas Instrument with the TI-99 had an unambiguously stated goal of becoming the name in home computers. They were out for blood. This is the company that had instigated price wars in digital watches, in calculators, especially calculators, crushed the competition, dominated the market. TI became the company in calculators by flat-out slaughtering all the competition. And they were going to do the same thing in home computers. That was their goal. So they wanted a broad base of software ready to go as part of their attack. They went to Scott Adams because that was kind of the adventure game 
paradigm that made the most sense on these home computers, as we talked about. Scott Adams got in very heavy on the TI-99. Well, it turned out, at the end of the home computer price wars, it was Jack Trammell's revenge. Jack Trammell crushed Texas Instrument in home computers, just as Texas Instrument had once almost driven Commodore to bankruptcy in calculators. A computer, the TI-99, that on launch, and we're referring to its re-release here as the TI-99-4A in 1981, not the original cost in 1979, whole other story. We'll talk about the home computer wars one of these days. A computer that, when it was released, was a $525 machine, by the end of its run, was being sold for less than $100. And this was not because of Moore's Law. This was not because of technology efficiencies. This was not because they could afford to sell it at that price. But they got sucked into a price war with Commodore, and it was a price war they could not win, and they ended up throwing themselves into a death spiral. Because Adventure International had been so tied to Texas Instrument, that created a huge financial crisis at the company, because they never got funding. You know, in so many of these company histories, we talk about how they went here to get funding, went there to get funding. We haven't brought that up with Adventure International because there was no funding. There were no venture capitalists. There were no angel investors. There was no stock issue. This company was just being funded by its own small profits. It was being funded by the Adamses themselves, Scott and Alexis. I would liken it to the company equivalent of living paycheck to paycheck. Pretty much. It only took a couple of kits to create a problem. At the time this was all falling out, at the time that this was finally collapsing, Scott Adams had one final hope for the company. Because out of the blue, and that's how Scott Adams describes it, there was no groundwork laid. Literally out of the blue, Joe Calamari, the editor at Marvel Comics, comes calling and says, how would you like to create some games for Marvel? Scott Adams was a huge comic book fan growing up. I mean, this is like a dream. And it makes no sense. I'd love to know what Marvel was thinking on their end. Superheroes. Now, I realize that the comic book is a literary medium. I realize that a comic book is still images and word bubbles in sequence creating a story for you, the reader. But when we think of superheroes really, we think of action. Yes, maybe Batman's the world's greatest detective. Yes, he sometimes solves crime with his brain and not with his brawn. Superheroes, especially Marvel superheroes, <laughs> Fantastic Four, the Incredible Hulk, Spider-Man, the X-Men, they are creatures of action. Why, when you are literally moving into the interactive game space, the video game space, for the first time, you, as Marvel Comics, would want your introductory computer game programs to be parser-based adventure games. I have no idea. This makes no sense. Explore the X-Mansion, the adventure game. See if you can find Cerebo. They made an incredible Hulk game. Can you think of any superhero less conducive to a cerebral puzzle-solving game than the Incredible Hulk? Yes, I know Bruce Banner is a genius, and yes, I know there are versions of the Hulk, like the Grey Hulk, that are much smarter and retain some of that intelligence, but we're talking about a game just starring the big green guy. How does Hulk Smash 
translate into an adventure game. Hulk smash the right thing. <laughs> Basically. So, I mean, this, this is kind of weird, but it's an opportunity because he gets full rights. They plan to make a series of like 12 games and he has his pick of the litter. He can use anybody. Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, the X-Men, Incredible Hulk. Deadpool. <laughs> Didn't exist back then, but if he had existed, yes, he could have used Deadpool. It's not a good match. Now, he does upgrade the system a little bit at this point. There are graphics, but they start with an Incredible Hulk game, which just isn't very good. They move on to a Spider-Man thing. They do a Fantastic Four game where he has the innovative idea to have you control different sets of characters at different times so that you're using all four of the Fantastic Four. There's some good ideas there, but it's still primitive. It's still not really upgraded. It's still basically his old system at the end of the day. His puzzle design over the years has gotten more and more obtuse. They're just not very good, his puzzle designs. His prose has never been particularly great. There are graphics, but they're the very primitive draw-and-fill kind of graphics. They're not good. I mean, all apologies to Scott Adams, but they were panned even in the computer game press of the time, and the computer game press at the time almost never panned things. Even things that deserve to be panned, they tended to be somewhat nice to. These games were bad, and that wouldn't necessarily be the end of it all on its own, because there are plenty of bad games that have done just fine, quite frankly. It did have the power of the Marvel name, but you see, they had been tied up with Texas Instrument, and once Texas Instrument fell apart... They made a deal with Commodore. Commodore swooped in. The victor in the home computer wars swooped in and basically took over the TI deal. So they had been planning to rely on TI and then did rely on Commodore to market these Marvel products. This Marvel Comics thing, this isn't just something you can throw into a catalog with a hundred other products and call it a day. Marvel is a big brand, obviously not as big in the early 80s as it would become. Certainly didn't mean the same thing that Marvel means today with the MCU and all the success they've had in film and television. That's still a pretty big property. That still resonates with the nerdy set that also play games. So you can't just stick it in a catalog. So there was going to be a marketing arrangement with Texas Instruments. It falls through because Texas Instrument gets the heck out and dumps the product. Commodore agrees to come in and take over, take over that marketing aspect of this. But the problem is Commodore is not a good marketing company. It never has been. Someday we'll do a more in-depth history of Commodore, and if you want the story now, you can read Brian Bagnall's excellent books on Commodore. Commodore was many things, many of them very impressive, but it was never a marketing company. Jack Trammell never trusted or believed in marketers. Irving Gould would never give him the money to spend on marketing anyway. Even after Jack Trammell uh, was forced out of the company, resigned from the company in 1984, it was never a company where marketing was in its DNA. This was about the worst partner that you could have if you wanted to be marketed. They weren't doing a good job of selling the games. The games weren't selling well anyway. Distributors had taken some orders on the Marvel games and some other products. Reading between the lines, he doesn't come out and say it's specifically the Marvel games, but Scott Adams mentions that some distributors took some large orders that they couldn't end up selling through. And even though he doesn't specifically say it was largely the Marvel games, my guess is what enticed these distributors to take these larger orders was that Marvel name and thinking that they would sell. But the games didn't sell, so the distributors were returning these large orders after they didn't sell, in part because the games were less impressive, in part because the entire home computer market was imploding at this time. This Commodore contract is a disaster. They end up having to get out from under for pennies on the dollar. They don't get nearly out of it what they thought they would. So all of these things together 
the Commodore deal being bad, the home computer market imploding, Texas Instruments going away, distributors making big orders and then returning a lot of the product after it doesn't sell. In 1985, it just buries the company. Scott Adams won't talk about it, and I don't want to speculate too much because these are living people and you don't want to unfairly impugn. But there's an implication that Scott and Alexis between them were not making the best of financial decisions for the future of the company at this point. That some of these deals they entered into were probably deals they should have never entered into, and that they shot themselves in the foot a little bit in the way that the company collapsed. But I think it would have collapsed anyway, because it was very clear that this was just a company that was not going to evolve. Just like Surtech in a different era. Surtech, as I said, lasted longer because they had bigger hits. They had more success than Adventure International ever did. But just like Surtech in the late 90s, as we talked about, just kind of petered out at the end. That's kind of what happened to Adventure International because it was just this small, literally mom and pop organization that was putting out products that were not the most sophisticated on the market that kind of found themselves a niche. But when that niche disappeared, they just couldn't move the company forward into the future. So not really much of an adventure for the end of it. It's really just a huge, perfect storm of bad events to really just take them out. Between Marvel, poor financial decisions, bad game products, not having things on newer platforms, not rewriting the engine, Mm -hmm. not really advancing in technology. You see this in your daily life. Technology lives and breathes on innovation. It innovates so quickly that... You know, you say a dog or a cat lives seven years and one year of human life. With computer, it's like two or three times that. Right. Feels that way. Sometimes it was that way. Absolutely. I mean, in this period especially, I mean, obviously it still moves fast. But it moved so fast. Because from 1977, year before Scott Adams released his first game, to 1985, less than a decade... You went from these small catalog companies like Programma or Adventure International that were just gathering everything they could and throwing it out there and just haphazardly seeing what stuck to sophisticated companies like Electronic Arts and Activision, which were not perfect in every aspect. They had their difficulties too, but they were focused on every aspect of the business and they were laser focused on maximizing the potential of their product. You got from point A to point B so fast, and if you didn't move with that change, then boy, you were done. And there were, there were a few that went out right at the same time. Adventure International was one. Muse Software was another. There were a few companies. There have been several periods in computer game history where there were kind of mass failures, kind of mass extinction events, if you want to put it that way. We've talked a little about the mass extinction event in the 90s before, but this kind of 1984 to 1986 period was another mass extinction event in computer game history. And it was the small mom and pop kind of companies like Adventure International that really went out in that extinction event in the mid-1980s. We'll just leave it for some adventure in the future to unearth maybe someone internationally. You know, as a footnote, it's interesting. We have to end here with just what you said. There was an international international element of it that survived. He made a deal near the end with a company in the UK that went by the name Adventure International UK, which was kind of a quasi-subsidiary. It wasn't really part of the company, but it was kind of part of the company. But it was completely independently run by guys in Britain. They did a better job of sourcing local games and local talent, and they actually lasted a lot longer. They lasted into the 90s. But just in Britain, not in the United States. There's your international adventure that future generations can find in the end. Well, considering at the time that in 
Great Britain, the entire home computer market thing was a bit behind the American version of it, mirrored it in a lot of ways. That kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. Where will we go to on our next adventure? So I think I want to do something a little different, Jeffrey, a little weird. I mean, we've done lots of weird and different things here. As you are aware, and our public will shortly be aware, at the time of this recording, we are zeroing in on 100,000 total downloads of all of our episodes combined. It's quite possible we will have actually passed that milestone by the time this episode releases. I don't know how fast this goes up. Jeff knows. He looks at the numbers. But the point is, we are getting very close to 100,000. I think we're about three or four episodes away from hitting that. Yep, but we're getting close. There was a time when 100,000 meant something in computer games. There was a time when 100,000 meant that you had a certified, bona fide, over-the-moon, unbelievable, financial bonanza hit. In that period of time, there was an organization called the Software Publishers Association, which still exists which was the lobbying organization for the software industry. It was not computer game-specific. They were also representing the operating system people, the programming language people, the database people, everybody. They would give out awards similar to what the uh, record industry gives out. They would give out gold and platinum awards for all software, but including games. Though because software did not sell as much as hit records did, instead of a silver being 500000 and a gold being a million... A silver would be 50,000, a gold would be 100,000, a platinum would be 500,000. So there was some form of sales tracking going on. It wasn't done publicly, but it was kind of going on. There happens to be a 1990 almanac, computer software almanac, that gives a complete list of all of the computer games at that moment. Only a couple had reached platinum status, 500,000, but all the platinum, gold, and silver games at that time that had been awarded. In honor of reaching close to, getting really near to 100,000 downloads, we're going to take a look at this list of 100,000 game sellers and kind of encapsulate what this meant in terms of the larger computer game industry at the end of the 1980s. What the market looked like, what was selling, what was popular, why this was doing well, why that was doing well. We're going to do 100,000s for 100,000, Jeffrey. Works for me. we got to have a few of those episodes that give us that high overarching landscape view. Exactly. So something a little different, but I think we can get some interesting stories out of that and and tell something interesting about the video game industry within that context. And it promotes our milestone that's coming up, uh, like you said, within the next few episodes. So that just seems to work. You listeners have a detailed list of episodes to catch up on before next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have linked to some of the scenes that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. 
used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.